Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 8. The book of Acts chapter 8. As you are turning there, I'll just go ahead and tell you that the theme for the sermon today is just one point, one real main idea, which is the idea of false conversion to Christianity. False conversion. Now, if if you're anything like me, just hearing that topic can be a little bit unsettling. That may not be what you want to spend the next minutes thinking about. Uh, It can challenge all of us. It can can make us ask some difficult questions and to, to, um, to, I use the words of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says this to the church in Corinth, and we could apply this to our own lives. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith, faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, of course, you have failed the test. So, it is biblically right to, at times, ask questions about our own standing with the Lord and to see whether our faith in the Lord is genuine. For those who were or were not here last week, let me just catch us back up to speed real briefly about this setting in Acts. The gospel has exploded out of Jerusalem into the southern kingdom of Judea. In this chapter, it makes its way for the first time out of there into Samaria, the northern kingdom, and then later in Acts, in Acts 10, it will get to the Gentiles, right, the ends of the earth as it progresses. Philip, after Stephen was killed, Philip was one of those many hundreds of Christians forced out. Remember, I compared it to blowing the dandelion seeds. The Christians were forced out of Jerusalem. Hundreds of them spread every which way, and they went about preaching the Word. When Philip preaches in Samaria, people who had been listening to this guy, this magician, uh, Simon Magus, they had been following him and his great works, so-called, which were really demonic, and they turned and trusted in Jesus as Philip preached him. And then, remember, there was this interesting thing that happened. The Samaritans believed and were baptized, but what had not fallen on them yet? The Holy Spirit. And we talked about how this was a unique moment in history where whenever the gospel was advancing from first the Jews in Acts 2 to the Samaritans in Acts 8, who's next in Acts 10? The Gentiles. Each time that happens, an apostle is present. In fact, the apostle Peter is present for all three of those. And so, Peter and John needed to be present in order to keep the unity between the Christians in Jerusalem and the Christians in Samaria. So, with all that in mind, I'm going to reread last Sunday's text all the way through today. So, this will be Acts 8, verses 1 through 25, and we will be focusing in particularly on Simon the Magician in today's sermon. So, again, this is the Word of the Lord, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, picking up just after Saul was involved in the killing of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. Acts 8, 1. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. 
For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Okay, I don't normally read excerpts quite like this, but I'm going to read to you just a little bit from one uh, scholar, Eckhard Schnabel, and his excellent commentary on Acts. He describes what this idea of being a magician was, okay? We, ha- we have our modern sense of a magician, right? We're thinking you know, card tricks and sleight of hand. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here with Simon. And so, let me just read a little bit about what uh, this word uh, would indicate in the ancient world. So, listen to these words. In the ancient world, magic, what today we would call witchcraft, sorcery, or the occult, was based on the view that human beings, gods, and demons, and the visible world are all connected in ways that can be influenced by rituals involving incantations and the manipulation of objects. Its purpose was to overcome public or private problems. Usually, magic was defensive, harnessing the powers of gods or spirits in order to gain protection against diseases and demons. Active forms of magic sought victory in a race or success in sexual liaisons. The the offensive use of magic against personal enemies involved cursing. It was often feared and punished. The term translated magic magi, 
denotes rites ordinarily using incanta- uh, rites ordinarily using incantations designed to influence, control, descendant, transcendent powers. And then he says, importantly, according to the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, all forms of magic were forbidden, though this did not prevent Jews from engaging in magical practices. The fact that Simon practiced magic probably implies that he earned money from the sale of magic spells, but does not necessarily that his uh, that uh, magician was his profession per se. Now, I will tell you, um, we know, we, we have several early church fathers in the second century who talk about this very man. They call him Simon Magus. We have actually, it's a kind of amazing amount of information we have about him a century later. Now, I'll just tell you at, at the start, I think a lot of the stories about him a hundred years later are probably embellishments and are, have legendary aspects that are almost certainly not historical. But the reason I mention that is because he was known to have been a massive, influential false teacher in the early church after this story here in Acts 8. Some people credit him with starting the beginnings of Gnosticism, if you know what that is, in the second century, that he may have helped formulate some of the beginnings of that belief, and on it goes. Um, but things do not look good for for Simon and where he ends up. So let's just walk back through the section involving him in our text, and let's see what we can learn about a false profession of faith, what the Puritans used to call false professors, false professors of faith in Christ. And let's look again at verses 9 through 13. And just as you, li- as you read through this, listen for words like amazed, which repeat, the word great, which repeats, and the word power or miracles, which is used repeatedly. Again, verses 9 to 13. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles, or literally powers, performed, he was amazed. Now, do you kind of get a picture here? Paul is repeating words to give us a sense. Samaria was paying attention to Simon. They were amazed by Simon's magic. They thought he was great. Philip shows up, empowered by the Holy Spirit, more powerful than the demonic practices of Simon, and now this time, Simon is the one amazed. You get this? Samaria was amazed at Simon, right, for his magical abilities. Now, Simon is amazed by Philip and the miracles done by the Spirit. So, you see that the Holy Spirit is far more powerful than whatever Simon was doing. You also see that Simon is called great twice. You walk up to Simon, Simon, tell me about yourself. Well, I am great. That's the first thing you need to know. By the way, uh, I am also the power of God that is called great. Like, man, this guy needs to, needs to take a breather here and think a little more carefully about himself. So this guy is calling himself great twice, or they, they call him great twice. He looks at Philip's miracles and says, that's great. Same word. So now he's, he's thinking Philip is great, and now instead of being amazed by Simon, Simon is now amazed by Philip. And so you see this turn take place. Now, the amazing good news is that it says here in just strong terms 
Samaria received the Word of God. If you, we talked about the history of Samaria last Sunday. Can you imagine that? Samaria. Uh, Samaria, I remember they had mixed their religion with Assyria. They had a false temple on Mount Gerizim. Th- these were not people who were carefully following God's Word. They were syncretistic, mixing their religions together. And it says here, that Samaria, those people received the Word of God in verse 14. And in verse 12, they were baptized after they believed the gospel that Philip preached. So, this is wonderful. God's gospel can break through no matter your background, no matter how you have grown up. I mean, I said it last week, and and I, I don't mean this in a joking way. People who have been involved in the occult, people who have been involved in witchcraft, those people are real. They are still around. Those people can trust in Jesus and experience salvation right here and right now and be cleansed from their sin. Also, self-righteous Pharisee types. Perhaps some of us in this room lean that direction. We also can be cleansed of sin and saved by Jesus. And you see this massive uh, conversion of this city, and they identify with Christ publicly through baptism. Now, that is all wonderful, but let's look here again at Simon. Look at verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. He believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, if you wouldn't mind turning with me in your Bible, hold your spot here and go to the left to John, uh, one book to your left, John, the end of chapter 2, John chapter 2, and this, I think, begins for me something that is a little bit unsettling. We are told Simon believed in Jesus and that he was baptized, and we will look in a moment at the end of the passage, it looks pretty clear that he is not genuinely a believer and that he is still in his sin. So what does that mean that he believed and was baptized? Well, in the New Testament, there are two kinds of believing. There's two kinds of faith. Uh, You can remember James chapter 2. James talks about living faith that produces a changed life, and he talks about, what's the other kind? Dead faith that does not save. Faith without works, he says, is dead. And what's maybe most shocking about what James says is, he says, guess who believes? Even the demons believe and shudder. So, he says, you know, you, you, you claim that there is one God, that God is one. You're a good monotheist. Well, that's wonderful. Satan is also a committed monotheist. The demons know that there's only one triune creator God. They know that, and they tremble. Uh, And so, what, what we're seeing here is there is a kind of believing that is real. You believe these things are true, but it is a head knowledge belief. It does not actually get down into the heart and the affections and transform the life. And just look at uh, John 2, as you can see an example of this. John 2, 23, after Jesus has done some miracles, turning the water into wine in Cana and then cleansing the temple, it says this in verse 23, now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. Sounds like Simon. But Jesus, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them, 
because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man, perhaps one of those men he just mentioned, of the Pharisees, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I'll just stop there for a moment. I am suspicious. I think Nicodemus was one of the crowd at the end of two who believed in Jesus, but not genuinely because Jesus did not entrust himself to them. So, what does that mean? Well, just to be personal, I've told my testimony many times here, but I spent uh, about ten and a half years-ish of my life as a false convert to Christianity. Now, this started when I was young. I was raised in a, in a wonderful Christian home, and I prayed a sinner's prayer when I was five, and I prayed a sinner's prayer actually many times after that. But I prayed and I, I thought I was putting my faith in Christ. I asked Him into my heart, into my life. I asked Him to forgive my sins. I even wrote a little journal entry about it when I was six a year later, uh, and there it was. I've, I've got it right there. I was outside my dad's church, walking on a little sidewalk when I prayed to receive Christ when I was five years old. Uh, you know, a few years go by, I later joined the church. I had a testimony that went with that. I was going to a private Christian school. I had Bible class every day of the year, and I knew the Bible probably better than a lot of kids my age would have known the Bible, and I really did believe Jesus lived the perfect life, died on the cross as a substitute for sinners, that He was buried in a borrowed tomb, that He rose on Easter morning, that He ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that He was coming again to judge the living and the dead. I really did believe that was true. I believed there was such a place as heaven and that there was such a place as hell. And I knew, that, at least in my mind, that I deserved hell and that I had trusted Christ and I was going to go to heaven. All of that was there. And if you would have asked me, I could have explained it to you. I did explain it to numerous people over those years. And yet, I would say that I was like Simon or one of these people. Although I believed in Jesus, I do not think my believing in Jesus was a saving faith because I don't think it had actually transformed my heart. I don't think I was actually born again with a new nature, and I don't think my deepest desires had been affected or changed by Jesus. Now, it is very easy to have a story like the one I have. It is very easy in the United States to have a story just like mine. I, I can imagine in this room, a lot of us grew up in church, and a lot of us were baptized before we were 10 or 11. And I bet for a number of you, you've wondered, and maybe even come to realize, some of you, that your childhood faith was genuine and true. Like, for instance, Jerry Edgar, he was converted around five years old, and that was truly when he was converted. And for some of you, that is probably absolutely right. But my guess is, and I know from talking to many of you, that some have a story like mine where years went by and there was no real evident change of life or desire, and then at some point further down the road, maybe as a teenager or in your 20s or later, you had, and you may not even know the exact moment, but there was something that occurred in your life where suddenly desires, I'm talking the deep desires in your heart, changed. And you started to see transformed effect 
from those desires in your life, and suddenly desire for God's Word, which used to be dry as anything, boring all the time, became something that you wanted, became something that you needed to just make it each week. You needed to spend that time with the Lord. Prayer went from perhaps being a dry ritual before a meal to something that you wanted to do, that you wanted to find time to do, that you had to do, that you had to speak more with your Lord because He cared for you. Suddenly there was a desire to be around believers and to talk about the things of the Lord when in the past you always wanted to change the subject or just get into a debate about something. It wasn't actually about knowing and growing in who the Lord was. And this is why Jesus looks at a man like Nicodemus in John 3, who, you know, in our words, grew up in church, right? Grew up in the synagogue, grew up in Jerusalem, grew up reading the Torah. He knew his Bible. And yet Jesus looks at him, and he would have been the best the flesh can produce. And he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again from above, or you're not even going to see the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus is confused and says, how can a man be born when he's old? And Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand this most basic thing that Ezekiel talked about, a new heart within you, put my spirit on you, wash you clean, give you a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. Nicodemus, you've got to understand that all people need this new birth, no matter how moral or immoral they appear outwardly. Down to the core, we need a new heart and a new nature with saving faith. Turn to John 6, just a few chapters to your right, and we went through this maybe two years ago as a church, so I'll just kind of hit a few highlights, but this is just after the feeding of the 5,000 has occurred, and look at something. So, we find out the crowds are seeking Jesus in verse 24 of John 6. Look at verse 26. So, the crowds come to find Jesus after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you. You are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And then verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And he keeps speaking. Skip down to verse 60. When many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, that is, truly believe, and who would betray Him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Verse 66 is just a sad verse. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So you see here, the crowds looked like they wanted Jesus because they were seeking Him. That looks like faith. 
They were about to make him king back in verses 14 and 50. He's the Messiah. Let's go. They went all the way around the Sea of Galilee looking for Jesus. They spent days out there listening to him teach, going hungry, where he had to feed them. And Jesus says, yes, that's true. All that is true. But why are they seeking me? Because they had their fill of the loaves. Jesus right here is saying, there's a kind of faith that thinks Jesus is really God and the Savior. He's really the Messiah. But that faith in Jesus finds Jesus useful for other ends, not an end in himself. Jesus is useful, not beautiful. Jesus is a means, not an end. They say, oh, He can provide magical food. He can do a miracle and give us food and fill our stomachs, and we don't have to work. This is incredible. He is powerful. He's incredible. We will follow that Jesus. And then as soon as He says something controversial that they don't like, the crowd begins to dissipate. Why? Because they wanted what He could do for them, not who He could be for them. False faith worships Jesus for what He can do for them, not for what He will be for them. And that is what makes it so deceptive. So, going back to my own story, I knew hell was real. I really believed that. And I was afraid of it. And I thought, well, I'll believe Jesus because I don't want to experience God's judgment. And so, it was a fear of hell. It was a combination of wanting to look good before other people. It was, you know, all these things. That's why I believed in Jesus. But if you, if you really examine my life, and people did, it was very obvious I did not love Jesus for Jesus. I found Him extremely important and useful, but not compelling and beautiful in and of Himself. So, I'm going to tick through four things uh, rel- with, with relative uh, speed, I suppose, uh, four things that occur in the new birth. And while we're, uh, while we're doing this, uh, turn with me to the right to 1 Peter chapter 1, and I may just have to summarize some of these passages as we go. 1 Peter chapter 1. So, the four things are these. When, when true conversion happens, there are four things that are new. Number one, you get a new nature. Number two, you get new senses. Number three, you, you have new worship, and number four, you have new life. So, new nature, new senses, new worship, and new life. And so, this new nature is what I'm trying to describe right now. And 1 Peter 1, just to kind of boil it down, he's talking to Christians experiencing some severe trials. And here's what he says about their faith. Look with me at verse 6, 1 Peter 1, 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while... If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why are trials necessary? Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. This is real faith. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, just think about this. 
one of the reasons God brings difficulties and trials into our life, and one of the most important reasons, is to simultaneously test or try our faith. So when we go through a trial, what's on trial is our faith, okay? And if, it's, if the gold of our faith is fool's gold, we will find out because during severe trials, oftentimes people who have false faith end up renouncing their faith and turning away from God saying, I thought God was good. How could He let this happen to me? I don't trust Him anymore. I don't even know if He's there anymore. I want nothing more to do with Him, and I turn away. So the trial put the faith under test, and the faith, sadly, in many instances, did not pass the test. It was false faith. Now listen, why is it that faith crumbles under severe trials if it's false? Think about it. That false faith wanted Jesus not for who He was, but for what He could do for me. And when He's not doing for me, circumstantially, what I want Him to do for me, I'm out because my faith has no longer any purpose because my faith was never about knowing and loving God. It was about knowing and loving the things He could give me. And when He's not giving them to me, I'm out. Do you see how false faith just falls apart? This is why Satan accused Job to God. Remember? Satan says to God, of course Job worships you. You never let anything bad happen to him. You put a hedge of protection around him. Take the hedge down. Let bad things happen to Job and his family, and he will curse you to your face. The whole accusation of Satan was, Job's in it for what you're doing for him, not for who you are to him. And Job passed that horrifying test, weeping, tearing his clothes at the death of his children. I mean, can you imagine that really happening? All his children die in one day. He falls on his face, tears his clothes, falls into the ash pile, and in the midst of grief, what does he do? He doesn't curse God. He says, God, you give and take away. I came into the world with nothing. I'll leave with nothing. Blessed be your name. And in the midst of his grief throughout those chapters, at the end of the story, he's still clinging to God, because Job's faith was real. No matter what you threw at Job, he held on to God because the prize was God, not circumstances. Now, genuine faith, when it goes through the fire, doesn't burn up. It gets purified. And we've, haven't we just been there in life, all of us who know the Lord? Those hard times that last maybe for months where you're going through something agonizing, and maybe even other people around you can't even identify with the pain that you're uniquely experiencing, with loss or whatever. It may be depression. And in the midst of those times, if our faith is real, we find ourselves with a double grip on the grace of God. We don't know where else to turn. Where else do you go? Only you have the words of eternal life, right? Peter said. Peter's confused, but his faith is real. Lord, you're confusing us, but we don't know where else to turn. You only have the words of eternal life. Peter, in his confusion, is grabbing hold of Jesus in John 6. So genuine faith always comes out of trials more refined, more trusting, more in love with the Lord, even in the grief. False faith begins to fall apart in the trials and the testings of life because it was never in it for God. It was in it for God's gifts. Turn to 2 Peter, just uh, to your right, 2 Peter chapter 2. And I've always thought this was a powerful way of explaining this by Peter, 
Look at 2 Peter 2, the end of the chapter. Start in verse 19, describing these, these false teachers. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them, the dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Now, you get the picture of what's happened here? This is frightening. You have a group of people who have heard the gospel, the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They have professed faith in Jesus. They have outwardly changed their life. So, they used to live outwardly in clear immorality, and they stop they start, a, they, they join this church, they, they, they become committed members of the church, they're baptized, no doubt, and all those things. And then it says, they then, what? They go back to the way they had been living before, and the last state is worse than the first. It would have been better for them never to have heard the gospel than to have done what they did. And then he says, it's like a pig that returns to wallow in the mire. Now, Jonathan Edwards was so helpful on this 300 plus years ago. But this, what he said about this text, I don't think I'll ever forget. What is a new nature? So, so think about this. A pig's nature is to be clean or dirty? Dirty, obviously. Now, can you clean a pig if you have to? Yes, you can clean a pig. I don't know who wants to try this, okay? But if you want to try this, you can clean the pig. You can soap it down. You can wash it off. And you can make that clean, maybe even sort of smell okay. Probably not. But maybe you can clean that pig off and make the pig look nice and clean. Is the pig going to stay clean? Give it a few minutes and give it one, you know, swampy area nearby. And that pig is going to be like, okay, enough of this. Almost like, you know, a, a young child throwing off their Sunday clothes, like, get this off of me. This does not belong. And the, the run, he runs into the mud, jumps into the mud, and covers himself in mud. Why? Because although you can make a pig clean temporarily, the nature of a pig is to return to the mud. That is its home. Now, you could take a cat. No, I don't want to hear your personal thoughts, whether you love or hate cats. But let's just talk about a cat, okay? We've had cats before at times. Don't have any currently, but we've had them before. And so when you have cats, here's what you'll find out about cats. They do not like to be dirty, do they? They do not like to be dirty. If they get dirty, they fall in some mud, they get outside in the rain, and before they know it, they are, they're licking themselves, they're trying to clean themselves, they get themselves looking perfect because the nature of a cat is to be clean. Does that mean a cat never gets dirty? No. It means a cat's nature, like a, a compass on a needle... You can, you know, you can knock a compass and, it, and the needle may spin, but where is the needle going to go back? It's going back to true north. It's its nature. It goes back to where it belongs. The cat is going to become clean again. The pig is going to become dirty again. That is where it is at home. And the new birth is not about a temporary New Year's resolution to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus. New Year's resolutions are oftentimes me committing to do something against my nature and then not doing it for very long, all right? That's what normally happens. That is not becoming a Christian. Becoming a Christian is not primarily a commitment. 
Obviously, it involves that. But it's most fundamentally a transformation of nature. You went from loving what was defiled before God to loving at the depths of your soul what is lovely and holy and good and righteous and true. At the foundation of your being, a transformation takes place. Now listen, can unbelievers temporarily clean their life up outwardly? Yes. And can believers temporarily fall into serious sin? Yes. But is the nature going to be different between the two? Yes. They can't stay against their nature. You can't keep a cat dirty. You can't keep a pig clean. Eventually, the nature will win out the day. And who I really am, what I really love begins to show. I mean, maybe we talk about this too much, but I don't know that you can, but everybody knows this, that we, we, many of us have been through this. If you grow up in a Christian environment, there is that period where parents hold their breath oftentimes, which is 18 years old in college, because... For so many, just like me and for many of us, there are constraints around our life that sort of keep our outward morality conformed to a certain extent, right? When you're growing up, there's only so much you can get away with. And then when you go off to college, especially if you move away, it's almost like this cage of constraints from your parents and your church sort of just gets lifted off of you. And who I really am in my nature, what? Comes out. It shows itself because now I can do what I want, what I really want to do. And so every year there's that concern for those graduating high school. It's the question is, is the faith that I've seen genuine and from the heart, or is it just something that's more external to their nature? Will this last? When you think about the parable of the soils, the rocky soil has a moment of commitment. They receive the word with joy, but in the time of testing, fall away. Or the thorny soil, similarly, when the pleasures of this world come, there is a falling away. So the first question I would ask is, have we experienced a new nature? Number two is new senses. Now, I'll just reference these passages. 1 Peter 2 says that when the new birth happens, we have tasted that the Lord is good. There is a new sense, spiritual taste buds, and they sound so strange. Spiritual taste buds, the, the Bible used to be bland on the taste buds of our tongue spiritually, and then suddenly for me when I was 16, the boring Bible turned into the Bible that I wanted to read, that I couldn't get enough of at times. I wanted to be in it because I could taste the goodness of the Lord in His Word. Not just taste, but we also get new sight. 2 Corinthians 4, Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. So when we looked at the gospel, it was boring. We had a veil over our eyes, and suddenly at conversion, the veil is lifted, and we can see glory in Jesus. So I, I just want to ask right now, in, in all sincerity, in your own life, not the people around you, in your own life, have you experienced the new birth that has created a new nature in you, that you have gone from spiritual death to spiritual life, and that the taste buds spiritually have come alive to Christ, not just the things around Him, but to Him, and the eyes have been opened to see the glory of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, the desirability of Jesus, that He is satisfying, that you can have joy and delight in Jesus, not in church per se, not in 
other things around Christ, but in Jesus Himself. Number three, there is new worship. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says that you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. So, have I turned from worshiping false gods and saviors in my heart to worshiping the true and living God? Has there been a new worship? I mean, like I used to be, and there's nothing wrong with, with enjoying a good movie. I used to be just obsessed with movies. I wanted to go into film, and there's nothing wrong with going into film. But I, I was going to go into film. I was committed to it. I thought about it all the time, 24 hours a day in middle school and high school. I was absolutely crazy about film and movies and photography, and those things are all good gifts from God. But when regeneration happened, I realized that I'd actually been worshiping those things, not just enjoying those things. And that I was finding my identity in those things, not just seeing them as gifts from God. And my true worship began to shift to the living and the true God. And also, number four, there is a new life. Here I mean new lifestyle, new actions, new behaviors. John the Baptist said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance See, so many of us think of repentance as a one-time act. You walk forward, you pray a prayer, you sign a card, you, I repented when I was eight. No, 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 bear fruit. I'm, am I bearing fruit in keeping with my repentance? Is repentance a characteristic of my life, that I keep seeing sin and turning and repenting of that as I go? Okay, let's turn back to Acts 8, and I want to wrap up the story of Simon here. So, as you turn to Acts 8, Simon has professed faith, he's been baptized, but you know what he's all about? He's still all about what? The miracles, the powers. Has his nature changed? No. Simon was all about powerful magic before his conversion, and then after he was converted, with air quotes here, after his false conversion, what's he still only talking about? The signs and wonders. He's just found a better object to get his miracle power from. He used to use magic, now he wants to use Jesus, you see? And now he wants to offer money to the apostles so he can put his hands on people and the Spirit can fall and they can start doing these wonders, maybe speaking in tongues and prophecy, and he can, he can just have these even more powerful things. So his nature hasn't changed. He still wants the same thing he wanted before Jesus, after Jesus. And Jesus is just useful for him to get that, he thinks. Look with me at verse 18 of Acts 8. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. Literally, perish means going to hell. May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. 
Now, there are several things that make me skeptical of Simon here. Number one, he says, Peter says, you don't have part or lot in this matter. If you want to look up Deuteronomy 10.9, part or lot is Old Testament way of referring to the inheritance. He's saying you're not part of the inheritance in Christ. Peter says in verse 23, you're in the gall of bitterness. That's from Deuteronomy 29.18, which refers to the gall of bitterness, apostasy, people who are turning in Israel to worship false pagan deities. He says, Simon, you're no different than the people in Deuteronomy 29.18 in the gall of bitterness. The bond of iniquity comes from Isaiah 58.6, referring to those who do not yet know the Lord. And then Simon answers, he doesn't say, Lord, please save me. He says, why don't you guys pray for me? That's not a good sign. Peter said, you pray. He said, no, 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 you pray. And then also, Simon doesn't ask for a new heart. He just says, pray that nothing bad would happen to me. Pray that nothing that you said would happen to me. And so this, as we kind of tie these things together, here, here are some questions. If we have not received the new nature, will we do what Peter said, which is to repent, to turn from our sin, to trust Christ, and to pray for the Lord to transform our heart and to forgive us of our sins. Will we do that? And listen, I know this is a, um, a heavy topic, but I want to close by saying this. If in this room you have, and by the way, the best way you know God changed your heart in the past is that change is still happening right now today. The, the best way you know that you repented when you were eight is that you're repenting today of sin that you're hating sin today, that you're trusting Jesus today. Today is the best evidence of your standing with the Lord. We don't want to trust 10 years ago I did something. No, no, no. Today are you trusting? And, and for those, and I'm sure it's many in this room who, who have, the Lord has changed your heart. Let us celebrate in a moment the goodness of God in rescuing us from ourselves, forgiving our sin, and making us right with Him through Christ. Do you know the gift it is to have a new heart, to have a new nature, senses that can taste and see that He's good, new worship and a new life in the Lord, the freedom of that, the joy of that, that is ours in Christ. And if you don't know the Lord, pray to the Lord that the intentions of your heart would be forgiven you and that the transformation of regeneration and new birth would take place even here in this room before we leave in just a moment. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, for anyone who may be listening right now who would say, I'm just not sure where I am with you, God, I pray that you would graciously convict them and show them where they are and that you would draw them savingly into your embrace even right now in this moment, that they would turn and trust in you and that your your spirit would be at work bringing about that new birth, that new nature in their heart. And God, for those of us who by sheer grace have trusted you and we have been transformed, although we are far from perfect, God, help us to celebrate your saving work in our life. Help us to live securely knowing that no one can snatch us, your sheep, out of your hand and that nothing can separate us from your love. 
And God, I pray that you would give us great assurance if we have experienced this transformation. I pray no one would leave today in the state that Simon was in here, but that we would leave celebrating the goodness of the gospel. Reading from 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to the Lord, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake... He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of of salvation. Lord, we thank you for the reconciliation that you have given to so many in this room, that you made your spotless son to be sin with our sin so that we could become your righteousness in Jesus. We now are clothed in his spotless clothing because he was covered in our shame. God, I pray that this would give us a confidence in your gospel to appeal to others with love and passion, knowing the fear of the Lord, that we would persuade others. And God, I do pray that you would continue your work of drawing those who do not yet know you to faith in Christ. Be with us this week, Lord. And I pray this all, we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus and all God's people said, amen.